For many people, gathering possessions is just the stuff of life. So reads a headline in, the 2014, in a 2014 edition of the LA Times. Mary McVean, the writer, she says, we cherish things and accumulate them. We move them from shelf to shelf and from home to home. The federal government estimates that a quarter of Americans with two car garages don't use them for automobiles. Even those without a permanent home carry their stuff around with them. She cites statistics that show the average U.S. household has 300,000 things, from paper clips to ironing boards. U.S. children make up 3.7% of children on the planet and have 47% of all the toys and kids' books. Now, McVean is not anti-stuff. She's talked about, she talks about the meaning of possessions, memories, sentimental value, connection to the past, just value, right, to your monetary value. She quotes Andrew Mellon, who is a professional organizer and author, and he says, I don't think stuff is inherently wrong or bad. But then he says, if things have become obstacles to your happiness, that's a problem. I think he's on to something. Yeah, I would submit he, steps, he, he, he stops a step or two short. Things are fine. Things can bring happiness. Things can bring joy. But when things become obstacles, not only to happiness, but to the, the God of happiness, the God from whom all happiness really can come, that's a problem. It's actually an eternal problem. We've been working through Luke. And this week in Luke chapter 12, we see Jesus give a warning about the accumulation of and then the reliance upon earthly possessions. So turn with me in our Bibles to Luke chapter 12, and I'll read for us starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We're going to take three cautions from Jesus this morning as a church. Three cautions, and we'll take them one at a time. First, take care because life isn't your stuff. Take care because life isn't your stuff. So our passage opens there in verse 13 with a man from the crowd approaching Jesus. He, he evidently esteems Jesus because he calls him teacher. It's a title of respect and honor. But he has a specific request for this honorific teacher. He says, teacher, tell 
my brother, to divide the inheritance with me. Luke doesn't give us many specifics here. It's possible this man is being wronged, maybe by an older brother or younger brother. It's possible, though, that he's also being overly greedy. We don't really know. But what is clear is that he wants Jesus to step in and help. Now, this isn't overreaching, really. It was not uncommon for Jewish rabbis to help in these sorts of legal matters. But Jesus declines. In verse 14, he says, Man, who made me an arbitrator or judge over you? It reminded me of the the end of chapter 10 when Jesus was invited into another sibling squabble. Remember that? Between Mary and Martha. Martha comes up and says, Jesus, could you just tell her to get in line, please? That was kind of the sister spat of Luke. And now we have the, the brother quarrel going on. And Jesus again says, don't get me involved. Why? I mean, Jesus is a judge, right? In fact, he is the judge. But this isn't his mission. He's come to speak of judgment concerning even deeper issues and family money. Look at verse 15. He turns to those listening and he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. I think Jesus is seeing into this man's heart. He sees there not just a need for justice, not just a need for legal right and wrong. He sees greed. And so he tells his hearers, watch out. Watch out for the subtle enemy of covetousness. What is covetousness? I think an easy way to define it is the sinful desire to want more. The sinful desire to want more. And with that sin in mind, Jesus is deathly serious. He says, watch out for that desire in your heart. Don't be blind to it. Don't think it's not going to be you. You know, especially in the church, we often talk about letting our guards down, right? Letting your guard down shows that you've reached a certain level of, a healthy level of comfort and security with others. It's kind of what Louise was just talking about, and that's great. That's what we want. But Jesus is saying when it comes to sin, especially covetousness, especially this sinful desire to want more, Jesus says, keep that guard on up, right? Keep your guard up. Keep your guard over your heart because your heart is going to hunger for more and more and more, and it's not going to be satisfied. Now, he's clearly not saying stuff is bad. James says every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And we know that our Father loves to shower us with good things in our lives. Family, vacations, friendships, possessions. It's not a bad thing for a Christian to have possessions and enjoy the things we own. We're not all called to be monks And yet Jesus knows there's this subtle danger when it comes to stuff because we're going to want more. And we're not only going to just seek enjoyment in our things, which he wants us to do. We're not only going to seek enjoyment in our things, we're going to seek life in our things. Paul points this out in both Colossians and Ephesians when he equates covetousness with idolatry. Look, think of uh, Colossians 3, verse 5, just for one. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, 
which is idolatry. What's Paul getting at? Well, he's saying coveting is more than just desiring. Desire isn't bad in and of itself. In fact, we are desiring creatures. There's this whole ministry called desiring God, right? Desire is not bad, but, but coveting is a craving that believes getting more will truly satisfy. Getting more will bring ultimate happiness. If we could just get more, if we could just accrue just a little bit more, if we could have that or that. It's what Daryl was leading us in before. And in such a way, coveting combats our worship of God. Because he is the one in whom we find ultimate satisfaction. Because he's our ultimate happiness. Because he's our ultimate rest. As those who are in Christ, we can sing that wonderful hymn that we sing often. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my, what? Life. But covetousness seeks to kind of rewind that cassette tape. This is how I think of it. Because I'm, I'm actually a little bit that old. And, and, and dub over it. Push the play and the record at the same time. And dub over that and sing, Hallelujah, all I have is mine. Hallelujah, my stuff is my life. My wealth is my life. My possessions are my life. And that's what Jesus says in verse 15. Why are we to be so careful? Why are we to keep up our guard? Why are we to be to take care? Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Our stuff is not what gives us worth. Our stuff is not what gives us merit. Our lives do not become more vital or more fulfilling the more we get. Our lives grow in vitality the more we live in and for and towards God. Because he's the source of life. And so demoting him in order to elevate stuff is exactly the definition of foolishness. It's actually the definition of insanity. Because you do it over and over again, expecting it to work. So church, we have a great application question here right off the bat. In what areas do you, in your own personal lives, battle and have to battle more covetousness? What are the things that you think, if only you had them, then you would be truly happy? Jesus says, whatever that is in your head right now, keep your guard up. Enjoy your stuff, yes. But we must enjoy it to the glory of the giver of it all, not to the glory of ourselves. And church, isn't Jesus' warning here so kind? He's warning us to turn away from a lie. A lie that life is found in our possessions. A lie that will kill us. It's just a lie. Life is found in him. So he's saying, turn away from that. Beware of that. Turn to me. I'm not asking you just to kind of become a religious unhappy person i'm asking you to find joy and so a question that i had to ask myself and i still need to ask myself in this kind of text is do i even believe that to be true it sounds nice when i sing it and like what is the world to me right it's a long hymn your mind might wander but go back print off those lyrics and and just meditate on them without music they're rich but do i believe them 
Do I believe that Jesus is my all? The, the world is empty and hollow if it just offers me happiness. I, can, I, find, I need to find that in him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that deeper, more lasting life and joy are found in Jesus than in an early retirement or a larger paycheck or a bigger house or a nicer car? Don't just nod an automatic yes. Ask yourself the question. There are many times when I think getting something new would bring me more joy than being content with what I have in Jesus. Maybe that's true for you. If it is, or even if you don't think it is, be on your guard. That's the first caution. Second caution, take care because riches fly away. There in verse 16, Jesus uses a parable to get his point across. Isn't it great that he uses parables, by the way? Because even as I'm preaching right now, some of you have zoned out. But now I'm going to tell you a story. It's actually Jesus' story. And you're going to think back about what I'm saying. That's what parables do. You know, we hear Jesus' instructions, the more mechanical and engineering of us will, like, click in and start putting it all into, a, you know, a graph and a chart. Most of us are going to be like, oh, a story. Okay. And that's what Jesus gives us. And he gives us a really good one. Okay. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. This is what is known normally in life as a good problem. Right? This man has had a bumper crop. His harvest has overwhelmed his current infrastructure. He has too much. Good problem. What would you do? Well, this man has to deliberate. Jesus continues, and, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And it's not a bad plan. You need more space. You build more space. But as we read these verses, this man's heart slowly becomes exposed. You see that in how often he repeats the words, I and my. Look at, look at your text. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. You're like, Jacob, that's just him talking in the first person, right? I think, I, think Jesus, I, I think Jesus is getting to something a little bit more, though. I think he's giving us a little insight into the godlessness of this man's future plans. His vision is myopic. It's bent in on himself. He, he wants to make sure he can take in this crop for himself. And he makes it clear in verse 19. And I will say... To my soul, soul, I love he just, you know, calls himself soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This man's sudden wealth takes God out of the equation. And actually, he starts thinking of himself as God. Knowing the future, many years. Years to come, I will be set. I'll be good to go. We learned about the foolishness of this mindset when we studied Proverbs back in the winter. If you remember Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. 
James picks that up again in the New Testament when he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Church, this man has just had wealth pretty much spring up. But instead of thinking outwardly, how can I be generous with this? Or thinking Godwardly, what would the Lord have me do with this? He turns inwardly. How can I make sure I never lose this? How can I make sure I can live it up from here on out? And, and people might take this different directions. I think one, another rendition of the rich fool might have been a guy who's like, build barns, hire more people, let's, you know, let's work, 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 work. I don't have time for leisure. I just want to keep doing this. This guy's like, book, book, some, you know, book some airfare to Bermuda. I'm ready. Let me live it up. Either way, the future is his to control. He has taken God out of the equation. The vertical axis that we talked about so much in the book of Proverbs, right? Relationship with God will influence everything we have in relationships on the horizontal plane with others. His vertical axis just disappeared. It's not there. And God will have none of that. Look at verse 20. God said to him, fool, right? It's the height of folly. If wisdom is, is orienting your life vertically before horizontally, this guy has done, a, done away with that. God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I mean, that's the futility of riches, isn't it? Death, you can't take anything with you. There's a story John Stott tells of a, of a pastor who did a funeral and somebody comes up to him afterwards and says, how much did she leave? I guess the, the woman who had died was rich. And he said, she left everything. <laughs> Death changes things. This man is called before God all of a sudden. You know, he had everything prepared. Maybe he was booking, he was sending out an Evite for the banquet the next day, right? And that night he dies and death changes everything. We can so often live our lives on this horizontal plane, can't we? And we forget the but God. God must be the end point of our lives here or else we're living as fools. God and his glory must be the ultimate desire of our hearts or else we're desiring stuff that will just fade away the more we try to grasp at it. And all the stuff this man worked for and then gained, all of it now not necessarily is, is gone. It's not necessarily non-existent. It's just not his anymore, which hurts a little bit worse. Jesus says, whose will they be? We see this reasoning in different parts of Scripture. So in Psalm 49, we read, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down with him. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Like Nebuchadnezzar, look at what I've built. 
and now I'm a cow. Right? Again, in, in Psalm 39, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. It's the futility of storing up for the now, believing that that storage compartment, that, that place where he stored everything, will take care of the then. You do not hold the future. Trust yourself to the one who does. I never watched it, but there, were that, there was that show, Storage Wars, I think it was called. You know, I, I don't know if they had these places that were locked up. And I never watched it, so I don't really know. But you can imagine people coming along and, and cutting the padlock because it, nobody's there to claim it. Oh, what's inside? Really, that's all of our riches in the end. Stored away. And the ones that we don't spend for the Lord's glory and use for the Lord's glory is just going to be stored away and found by someone else. The Christian's hands should responsibly steward his stuff and even enjoy it with gratitude. But the Christian's hands must hold on to his possessions, not with clenched fists and white knuckles, but with the awareness that God may take it all away and he'll still be okay, as long as he has God. I wonder if you would be okay if God took all your stuff away. I'm not saying you wouldn't be bummed, <laughs> even incredibly saddened, con- concerned, burdened. But would you still have your foundation? Would life still be worth living because you had Christ? Riches are fleeting. Jesus never leaves. Final caution then. Take care. Because true wealth is eternal. Take care because true wealth is eternal. That's the way Jesus applies the parable in verse 21. So is the one, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Those who follow after Christ, those who are not foolish but wise, find their greatest treasure not in the stuff of this world, but in the riches of God that last forever. I think we need to be really clear here, because Christians can either go full bore one way or full bore the other way, right? The problem in this passage is not money, and it's not stuff. I mean, if we did away with money and stuff, we'd be in big trouble, right? God has given us these things. He wants us to enjoy these things. He's created things to be beautiful on purpose. The problem is not money or possessions in this passage. The problem is our hearts. Because when we get money, and then we get more, or when we accumulate stuff, we are more and more tempted to be like that rich fool and lean back and rely on ourselves and just look at what we've built. And that is the essence of rebellion against the one who has built everything we see. So Jesus says, be rich toward God, don't be a fool. 
The way to avoid the rich fool's demise is to be rich in a way that transcends death. And so as Christians, our eyes are on eternity. And it is that perspective that allows us then to enjoy things on earth well. To enjoy things on earth gratefully and and wonderfully. I was at a wedding yesterday and the food was really good. And I enjoyed it. And I didn't just eat until I was satisfied. I ate a little bit more. And to enjoy those things from time to time. Enjoy them wonderfully, but not ultimately. So we would do well to pray and consider our own perspectives on our stuff and and our God. A pastor named Eric Reed has put it this way. He says, most of us have chosen heaven over hell. But not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. I wonder where that is true in my life, in yours. Where we've put our hope in the things of this world and not in God. As the old hymn puts it, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. See, the man at the beginning of our passage wanted his inheritance. But true lasting wealth is found not in what your parents hand down, but in God alone. You know, in our sin, Each one of us is bankrupt, right? We have racked up sin debt against God that we'll never be able to pay off. We are not only poor towards God, the Bible calls us God's enemies. But in 2 Corinthians 8, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, when we were bankrupt in our sin, Jesus came to take our sin on himself. He came to be judged for us on the cross so we might receive the riches of his salvation, his love, his eternal joy. And so, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you know who you are, Don't you see the tremendous good news of this message for you? You have a Savior who has paid your debt in full. You have nothing left to pay. All you need to do is repent of your life of sin and turn in faith to him and confess that he and he alone is your hope before God. Not your stuff. Not your 401k. Not your big house. Only he is your hope. In church, I was, as I was thinking about this passage, I, I was like, yeah, I've, I've heard this before, but, but what exactly does it mean to be rich toward God? I think we get some good clues from other places in Scripture. So before we conclude, let's go to two places. Go first to Matthew 6, if you have your Bible. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. 
Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Perhaps we don't get too many specifics there, but we do see that storing up treasure in heaven is decay-proof. It's eternal. It seeks the eternal. It seeks what lasts eternally, not temporarily. And so this means investing not so much in stuff as in souls, not so much in money as in mission. And so with our resources, how can we seek an abundant spiritual harvest in our homes and in our church? How can we give ourselves towards the spiritual benefit of others and thereby store up treasure that's going to last, right? One more. This is where Daryl was reading beforehand in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Daryl read for us the earlier part of the passage, but a few verses later, Paul takes up the, past, the, the idea of wealth again, and he gives us some specifics. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. This is life. And I think Paul Thank you, Paul, gives us some specifics here. Just look at it real quick. He urges the rich not to be haughty. And, you know, globally, we are the rich, all of us, globally speaking. So we are not to be haughty with what we have. We are to be humble with our possessions and our money. Maybe that means not speaking about how much we have. He says we are to set our hope not on the stuff, but on the one who provides exactly what we need and does so, you see that good news there? Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Enjoy your stuff for his sake. And so maybe that's a way to be rich toward God is to enjoy what you have for him. What does that look like? Maybe it means thanking him a lot. And then Paul gets even more nitty-gritty. He says, do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. He says, that is true life. That will lead to that which is truly life. So take stock of your life, Christian. Has your faith in Christ impacted your checkbook? Has your hope in God impacted your belongings? Good works that Paul calls us to here do not save. But as those who are saved, despite our, our, 
our, our sinful hearts, we show God's power at work in us through lives lived for his glory, doing good to others. So are you rich in works of love and grace towards others around you? Do people see you spending your time and your resources on the needs of others? Are you a sharer? Do people know you as a generous person? Our natural inclination is to hold tight to our stuff, but the gospel pries open our hands and fills our hearts with so much wealth that doesn't fade away that we think less about giving the temporary stuff away. Because who is our greatest treasure? As we'll sing now, it's our Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the good things you've given us. Forgive us for enjoying them for our own benefit, for our own glory, for our own 10, 15, 20 year strategic plans where we know that we can put up our feet and relax because we have it made. We know our hearts are prone to wander, prone to invest all sorts of worship and meaning in our stuff because we see our stuff. It just feels more real than you do. But we know that eternally you are the one who gives true life. So help us in our obedience Help us in our weakness, and by your Spirit, impress upon us the need to find in you our treasure. Help us to cling to you alone. In the name of Jesus, amen.